Coming up today, the weird link between YouTube videos and a rise in Tourette's-like symptoms in young women, and we explore the fight for control of Afghanistan's internet. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. Vicky Turk. Hello. And Grace Brown. Hello. This was the week when protests and technical glitches marked the first days of El Salvador accepting Bitcoin as legal tender. Servers for the country's digital wallet collapsed and the value of Bitcoin fell to its lowest in almost a month. This is also the week when a senior executive on Apple's automotive project left to join Ford, dealing Apple's ambition of moving into the automotive industry another blow. He's the fourth senior member of the team to leave this year. And finally, it was the week when mobile operator Free announced it would reintroduce roaming charges between the UK and Europe from May 2022. It follows similar moves from EE and Vodafone earlier this year. And before this, the companies have previously said that they would not reintroduce the charges after the UK left the EU. Long-term podcast listeners might have recognised a new voice and a new name. Grace Brown uh, has been a science staff writer for Wired for a few months now. She's now truly joined the team because she's on the podcast. Grace, welcome. It's good to have you here. Thank you for having me. Right, let's uh, put you on the spot. What did you learn this week, Grace? Um, So this week I learned that in 1967 in Singapore, uh, there was an outbreak of mass hysteria in which hundreds of men rushed themselves to hospital, reporting a condition called Koro or genital retraction syndrome. They'd become convinced that eating tainted pork meat would lead to penis shrinkage or disappearance or even death. Um, And it was only alleviated through a massive campaign to reassure men of the anatomical impossibility of retraction, um, as well as a media blackout on the spread of the condition. So it was, what was actually happening? People were reading about a thing, believing it to be true, and then running to hospital because they thought they were affected. Yes, that's exactly it. How very, very strange. We'll get onto something similar in just a moment. Uh, Matt Burgess, what did you learn this week? Yeah, so I learned that the uh, Jack uh, picture on a sort of in a deck of playing cards isn't actually royalty like the king or the queen. Um, So the card was originally uh, a knave, which was like during the 16th, 1700s was sort of another word for household servant or somebody like that. But because knave began with a K, uh, like king, obviously, it was changed to Jack uh, to avoid confusion. and, And it's as in sort of Jack of all trades. That's a very nice fact. I don't have any follow-up questions. Does anyone else? Anyone want to test Matt's knowledge of playing cards? Very well. Vicky, did you learn anything this week or or, or did, did you not manage to, to learn a thing this week? I did not learn anything this week. Neither did I. Let's move swiftly on. <laughs> uh, Vicky, would you like to take it away on our first story this week? <laughs> yeah, so welcome, Grace. Grace is going to lead our first story, which she has been looking into this week which is about the phenomenon of young people in Germany being diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome and then referred to a psychiatrist. But there's something a bit unusual about their symptoms. Yeah, so this psychiatrist in question um, had been working with Tourette's patients for about 25 years. um, And 
So these ticks in these patients uh, were unlike ticks that she'd ever seen before. Not only were they unusual, but every patient was displaying the exact same set of ticks. Um, and then eventually a young student in her group came forward and said she knew where she had seen those ticks before. Uh, they were the same ticks as a popular German YouTuber called Jan Zimmermann, who documents his Tourette's syndrome on his uh, really popular uh, German YouTube channel. Very mysterious. So just to step back a moment, what exactly is Tourette's syndrome and how does it usually manifest? So Tourette's syndrome is a neurological disorder. Um, it's characterized by repetitive and involuntary movements or vocal sounds, which are called tics. Uh, we don't quite yet know what the root cause is, but it's thought to be related to abnormalities in certain brain regions. Um, and Tourette's syndrome typically manifests at around six years old, and we see it much more often in boys, an average of about three to four Tourette sufferers are boys compared to every one girl. And that's another unusual thing about these patients. They were generally older than that, and many of them were girls or women. Many openly admitted to having watched Zimmerman's videos. So did these patients actually have Tourette's or was it something different? So given her experience, the psychiatrist immediately knew it wasn't Tourette's. Um, instead, the true diagnosis she deduced was something called functional movement disorder, or FMD. Uh, FMD is a movement disorder that results in involuntary abnormal behaviours, meaning that can often look like Tourette's syndrome. It's thought to be caused by a problem with the way signals are sent throughout the brain. So many of these patients uh, improved significantly after a course of psychotherapy. In fact, some of the patients had their symptoms disappear immediately after it was explained to them that what they had wasn't actually Tourette's. And one of the key differences here is that FMD is a psychological condition, whereas Tourette's is neurological. So the way that you treat the two disorders is quite different. So I guess that explains that. But it's still unusual that so many people would exhibit the same kind of symptoms. I think it was more than 50 that came to this specific psychiatrist. What, what's going on there? So the clinicians ended up chalking the odd phenomenon up to an outbreak of something called mass sociogenic illness, or you may know better as mass hysteria. Mass sociogenic illness spreads by unconscious social mimicry, um, typically spreads to vulnerable people, and is thought to be triggered by emotional distress. Um, and in this paper, the clinicians actually came up with a new term to describe this phenomenon, which was mass social media induced illness, because it was spreading through YouTube videos. And this isn't actually the first time that we've seen what appears to be a mass sociogenic illness spread through social media. There was quite a high profile case 10 years ago now. Yeah, so in uh, 2011, in a town called Leroy in upstate New York, there was a group of schoolgirls who just one day inexplicably developed Tourette-like tics. There were sudden verbal outbursts, dramatic jerky movements, and nobody knew why. And the story was subject of a massive media frenzy at the time, and it was widely covered online. And then in turn, this led to people who had never even met the girls to come down with the exact same symptoms. And as social media has increased and continues to do so, especially against the backdrop of the pandemic and lockdowns and the associated kind of isolation, there seems to be a bit of a trend of young people presenting with these kind of tick-like symptoms. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, there's been a whole bunch of reports of similar occurrences to this one. Um, many con- clinicians have been reporting an influx of patients to their clinics presenting with an almost overnight onset of tick-like movements, far more than they had ever seen in previous years. And many of these patients were display- displaying similar symptoms, and many said that their symptoms began after watching TikTok, specifically TikTok creators with Tourette syndrome. Considering that the pandemic has obviously led to widespread fear and anxiety, and obviously most of us have been stuck at home scrolling on our phones for the past 18 months, it's meant that it's resulted in the perfect breeding ground for an outbreak just like this one. So the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdowns that it's brought with it will one day subside. But, you know, social media is probably going to be sticking around for a while. What happens from here? Can we expect to see more of this kind of thing happen? Yeah, social media well, is obviously definitely not going away anytime soon. Uh, so it seems likely that we'll probably see more and more of cases just like these ones. Uh, but the pandemic easing may help to alleviate some of the anxiety and distress that accelerates these kind of outbreaks. Great. Thanks a lot, Grace. Fantastic first podcast performance, if I say so myself. Um, We'd love to hear your feedback on any of our stories as per usual, or just write in and say welcome to Grace as well. Get in touch at podcast at wired.co.uk. For our second story this week, we're returning to the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. Now, on the podcast a few weeks ago, we were talking about people racing to erase their digital lives. But that isn't the only struggle that's being played out online in Afghanistan. Matt, this week we've been looking at what the Taliban does with the country's internet and all of the associated infrastructure that supports it. Yeah, so we published a couple of stories in the last week or a couple of weeks that are sort of linked to this. And we'll obviously put both of those in the show notes. But to start with a a bit of context, I guess, uh, when the Taliban last ruled Afghanistan in well, between 1996 and 2001, um, the nation remained uh, resolutely analogue. It was basically offline. Obviously, during that period, the internet was still very much emerging for millions of people around the world, and there were lots of people that weren't connected at all, but it was also effectively banned by the Taliban. Um, And this ban was alongside bans uh, alongside music as well, um, and essentially was part of that sort of like bigger ideology. Um, However, Despite this sort of hostile approach to digital life within its uh, within Afghanistan's borders, the Taliban has held a more sort of nuanced view when it came to spreading the word of its own messages outside Afghanistan. So it's been on Twitter for more than a decade, and it's had its own official website since 1998. Um, and now, sort of 20 years on, uh, things have changed a lot hugely, and actually the the control and the sort of like uh, the underlying infrastructure of the internet is going to be something that is very sort of closely watched as uh, the Taliban's rule in Afghanistan continues. Nobody is imagining that this time the Taliban is going to ban the internet. I mean, internet penetration, as you'll get onto in a minute, Matt, I think in Afghanistan isn't particularly high, but back in 1996, you could probably get away with banning the internet. This time, I guess the genie's a bit out of the bottle. The internet is a part of all of our lives. It's in more or less every single country in the world. And de-interneting a country would be a very, very extreme thing to do. So what is the internet situation like in Afghanistan right now? And what do we know about the Taliban's current attitude towards it? So at the moment, um, as with many countries, Afghanistan's online presence and its infrastructure is key to um, the country's uh, future and successes or however 
however it's uh, sort of going to play out in the next few years. And it's also sort of vital uh, for people as they try to stay connected to the outside world. So as you mentioned, James, Afghanistan generally has pretty low internet penetration. So a few years ago, the most recent statistics we could find uh, were that there was 11% internet penetration. Although since then, I think many people obviously have access through smartphones uh, and not necessarily wired connections as such. Um, So there are currently five telecoms companies that operate in Afghanistan. Uh, Three of these are primarily owned or invested in by foreign countries. The other two are locally owned. Uh, One of the international uh, telecoms companies, uh, which is South African company called MTN announced last year that it was going to leave the country but has yet to do so and since the Taliban took over it sort of repeated its uh, suggestions that it is going to leave the country and may do so sooner than it was originally planning to Um, but one of the biggest fears uh, is that the Taliban could seize or order these companies to shut off internet connectivity and cut people off from the wider world so Pavlina Pavlova a consultant uh, who works on all these types of internet security issues said that the Taliban has a history of targeting telecommunications infrastructure and later and more recently uh, mobile phone towers which have forced mobile companies to shut off or limit their coverage and now that it's in power it obviously has more legitimate uh, powers and abilities to be able to force and control internet providers and and force them to shut down the connection if it's so desired and there's also uh, instances of this happening potentially very recently so uh, in the Panjshir Valley which is in the north of Kabul and one of the last places in the country that has not been taken over by the Taliban uh, it was reported this week that the Taliban Taliban did shut down internet and phone services uh, during some of the um, some, some of the conflicts and uh, tensions that were happening in that area. Um, and obviously, we talked about I think we've talked about internet shutdowns on the podcast a fair amount before, but they are a pretty blunt tool which have been rising in number in recent years and a way to sort of suppress people's uh, sort of rights to be able to sort of freely express themselves online and communicate with other people. So that's one of the big fears around sort of what the Taliban does next with the internet. And as you outlined there, Matt, this isn't something that might happen in theory. We're already seeing it happen. And the question remains, how widespread will the Taliban, Taliban's wish to control the internet become, right? So as you might expect, at the moment, quite a lot of the internet infrastructure and the companies related to that infrastructure in Afghanistan are related to America. The American presence in Afghanistan over the last several years meant that the two things were quite closely intertwined. Now that the US has left and the Taliban has seized power, how are we expecting all that to play out? Yeah, it's a a really good point because the way that the internet has evolved in the last couple of decades has very much meant that uh, there's a lot of the internet's infrastructure such as sort of content delivery networks and forms of hosting and domain uh, ownership and control that is very centralized in a small in the hands of a small number of companies so when we've seen the internet go down uh, or big sites go down on various occasions recently in the last year or so there's there's a couple of major outages that was because one individual provider had a, a problem with their service so um, that sort of thing sort of shows how centralized this is. And if the US in general decides to introduce sanctions against uh, against the Taliban and Afghanistan, one of those areas that they could look at could be uh, telecom services. So uh, within Iran, for instance, which has got heavily which has got uh, plenty of sanctions against it. Um, There are various US Internet services and companies that can't operate there. So there's the online 
the internet is very different in Iran in terms of like what people can access and how they can go about doing so. Um, so uh, what America decides to do or not do against the Taliban could very much have an impact on the internet in the country going forward generally. Um, so this is one area that is still up for a lot of debate. Uh, and one expert that we spoke to, uh, Doug Maldry, who's a director of internet and analysis at a uh, telecoms uh, related company said that um, actually this area of sanctions against the country in terms of on things around communications uh, is something that is there's been a bit of a movement recently uh, to say that these types of uh, sanctions shouldn't apply to telecoms companies because it's the individual people that are affected um, if you can't go around conducting your daily life connect to online services etc it has more of an impact on the individual people rather than uh, the government or those that sanctions are, are very much often put in place to try and convince or change their minds or get them to do something differently. And that's such a good point on the sanctions and who it ends up affecting. Um, we see in countries from Myanmar to India to China to Russia, all over the world where there are more authoritarian regimes and even in countries where maybe it doesn't seem like there are authoritarian regimes, but they want very strong control over the internet, such as in India. This is a tool that is used against people to limit their free speech to limit their access to information to quell protests i know we've written several times about shutdowns in communities in india which are linked to a desire by police forces to stop rioting or to stop local um discontent uh, against political decisions or the situation on the ground in local communities one would imagine that that with what's happened in the Pashwa valley that is something that will likely happen in Afghanistan, but it will be done by the Taliban, not by sanctions from external companies, is what you're saying. Yeah, it's a, it's a case of actually, there's a various sort of different ways that the internet could be affected by both, both internally and sort of externally as well. So it's more likely that it will be financial sanctions, sanctions on trade. They're the ones that are effective. Sanctions on telecommunications infrastructure tend to have the reverse effect of repressing the people and further strengthening the hands of authoritarian regimes. And earlier on, you mentioned uh, that the Taliban are present on social media. It's something that was covered quite widely um, as... Um, the news media tried to grapple with this idea that the Taliban was using Facebook and WhatsApp and, and other social media platforms to spread its message. Um, what do we know about how the Taliban is using these social media platforms and what sort of messages is it putting out? Because this is all part of its desire to control the internet, albeit in this case, not the infrastructure, it's the messaging. Yeah, the communications of the Taliban are equally important as well. And it's something that over the last couple of decades, the Taliban has become very good at in terms of its communications and its messaging, whether that's through online platforms or through uh, more traditional sort of uh, news media efforts. Um, so a couple of weeks back when uh, the Taliban did take uh, control of Kabul, we had a, we had some uh, we had three re researchers who are experts in sort of like counter terrorism and online communications and stuff write for us about the scale of the uh, Taliban's overall propaganda machine. And there's a link to that story in the show notes as well. Um, and their analysis shows that the Taliban essentially, uh, in the 12 months before it took over Kabul, pumped out 38,000 pieces of propaganda. And they said that the, tele the Taliban's propaganda machine is very vast, is very carefully segmented and entirely sort of 
unspontaneous. So when it was making advances within Afghanistan, it would document these and it would share them and it would have uh, people, uh, its its commanders and, and leaders of various factions uh, presenting sort of like the advances that the Taliban had made uh, to show that its strength and stuff like that overall. Um, and the Taliban's overall uh, propaganda efforts uh, vastly sort of... Uh, dwarf the uh, media apparatus of the Islamic State as well, which um, the Islamic State is typically understood to lead the way in sort of like extremist communications as a group. Um, And the materials that Taliban has been publishing in recent years have been uh, published simultaneously in five different languages, uh, Arabic, Dari, uh, English, Pashto and Urdu. Uh, These are to reach the uh, as many people as possible within Afghanistan and also sort of like surrounding areas um, and really the the effort they've done around sort of language and translation and these types of things has been one of the strengths that it's been able to sort of like do to spread the messages within the country um, and before at, before the Taliban took control of Afghanistan uh, a lot of their message were generally uh, trying to rally Afghans against the government and security forces but since it has took over its propaganda efforts are now largely focused on sort of unity security and generally good government governance and its sort of uh position or its efforts to position itself as a group that has completely changed now that it is in charge of uh the country in, in in total so um yeah what we've seen so far has been a lot of the uh efforts have been uh pre-organized press conferences, statements and interviews from uh, leadership figures. Um, but at the same time, there's also uh, the, the the rank and file members of the Taliban that we've seen plenty of reports coming out of Afghanistan about incidents of violence and deaths and uh, and, and treating uh and, and treating people within the country in sort of rep- repressive ways as well. So there's that side of things that it's, it's happening, uh, but is obviously not being presented in the group's own uh, propaganda efforts. And this is really, really important for what the Taliban is trying to achieve in Afghanistan, right? This time it's made very clear it wants to be recognised by the international community. It wants to form a government that can run Afghanistan successfully for many years to come. There's a lot of doubts about that, obviously, especially given some of the announcements about the formation of um, the interim cabinet. But what's likely to happen next? Where's this story going? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously very sort of difficult to make any predictions around this side of things because the the, the situation is very uncertain. There's a lot of moving parts in, in this, and it obviously depends upon a lot of different uh, actors as well. Uh, but some of the experts that we spoke to said the future may be a sort of two-track system when it comes to the internet, uh, and they say it could be similar to that of the situation in Mosul under the control of the Islamic State uh, and what this could look like could be internet access for Afghan civilians being highly restricted and monitored while at the same time the Taliban uh, will freely use uh, the internet for its own propaganda purposes Um, so uh, one person that we spoke to said that the Taliban have every incentive to remain on the social media platforms and generally on the internet to legitimise their own role because the first priority for them at the moment seems to be that uh, legitimizing themselves as a government and as the rulers of Afghanistan um and that's going to sort of like play out very um very much into sort of like their efforts and i think that what is important to mention as well is really that sort of like this isn't something that is just going to be uh controlled 
from within Afghanistan. So the decisions from Google, Facebook, Twitter, etc. about Taliban either communications or accounts or material that they are publishing, how much those are limited in the future. And we've already seen instances of the technology companies' policies changing. How much those uh, policies keep changing going forward is really going to uh, influence the overall ability to access the internet in Afghanistan, both, I guess, for the Taliban, but also for the normal civilians that are living under uh, the, the Taliban rule. That's an intriguing new dynamic, right? We've spoken plenty on the podcast and written um, on Wired about countries banning big, normally American platforms from within their borders. You know, you can't get on most of these services within China, Russia, um, at different times, India has banned um, major American technology platforms um, and Chinese technology platforms from within its borders. Whereas what you're saying here is because the Taliban is still recognized by many in the international community as a terrorist organization, that might mean that Google, Facebook, Twitter, etc. might do it the other way round and limit how their platforms can be used from within Afghanistan or by people who seem to be linked to the Taliban, right? Yeah, exactly. And that sort of like dynamic is one that's obviously going to play out over probably a little while as sort of like the international uh, community decides upon its approach to the Taliban's rule. Um, like we have seen at the moment, I think from from the point that uh, the, the Taliban took over, that Facebook had very much uh, was following the uh, some US guidelines around uh, it the Taliban being a terrorist group, whereas other technology companies weren't necessarily following that exact straight same line because of the various, there was a couple of different definitions of uh, the Taliban within US laws and politics. So I think that obviously what the US does here is going to play a big impact, but that could equally be from individual companies to also sort of like bigger political decisions as well. And I think we're going to see over the next uh, few months that actually this area uh, and the internet use is going to be something that is obviously crucially important to Afghanistan and its economy and its overall way of life for the people that are living there. So it is obviously something that comes down to uh, politics and infrastructure and logistics and all of these types of things, but obviously has a big impact on the daily lives of everybody within the country. Um, So yeah, I think it's going to be unresolved for a little while, but um, we'll obviously be keeping an eye on uh, what changes happen. And just finally, that's a really important point that the people who are going to be impacted by any decisions that are made by platforms or infrastructure companies are going to be people on the ground in Afghanistan, many of whom will feel very, very at threat now that the Taliban is in power. And it's not quite fair to draw a parallel between Facebook banning Donald Trump or suspending Donald Trump. But we've seen before the huge amount of controversy that can arrive from decisions that are taken by these companies based on their platform policies and what effect that can have on our democracies. And the impact that had on the United States, which many people would argue is a stable democracy, was huge. These decisions taken in Afghanistan could have an even greater fallout that because it's sort of out of sight, out of mind, might not get the same sort of media coverage. So as Matt says, we'll be keeping a very close eye on what's happening in Afghanistan in the digital realm. And we'll be, I'm sure, bringing more stories onto the podcast in the coming weeks and months. All right. Time for, I think, just one email this week, Matt Burgess. 
Yeah, we had an email from Maria from Serbia about the story that Amit was talking around last week around Zoom dysmorphia, uh, which the email had the subject line, I thought I was the only one. Uh, and then it started by saying, honestly, I felt personally attacked by your last podcast episode. Uh, and Maria wrote that over the last 18 months of working from home and staring at uh, themselves on video uh, and, and chat apps and everything like that, they came to the conclusion that their forehead is in desperate need of some Botox. My upper lip needs a bit of filling and something definitely needs to be done about that nose size uh, was what they wrote uh, however they said luckily uh, I haven't done anything yet to make uh, any of these changes happen because of other major expenses and, and lifestyle uh, choices and everything like that uh, but in the in previous months um, but after hearing us on the podcast sorry um, they realised that it is a, a global trend and they are not special um, that, that's their own words uh, and that they may actually think what needs to be done here uh, and then they yes, also say thank you for the podcast and they have been religiously following it for several years and recommend it to everybody who consumes podcasts. When we spoke about this last week uh, Matt Burgess with Amit. Um, I think it, it, uh, it's definitely a story that's sparked uh, a bit of a debate amongst people on the podcast, and we'll probably bring on a couple more emails in in the coming weeks. And um, there's been a lot of interest in this story online. Vicky, Grace, now that we're heading back into the office, Grace, you are in the Wired office today. Um, how, how how are you like handling that transition from living as like an avatar almost on someone's screen on Zoom to like returning to the real world? And like w one of the things we were saying is it's it's quite odd to move back into the work the workplace and not see yourself when you're talking to people because you're so used to this tiny little version of you being next to everyone you speak to. Yeah, I definitely became uh, very conscious over the pandemic of all the little facial tics that I make when I talk. Um, and I'm wondering if I've gone back to kind of mitigating them, which I did over the pandemic. You know, I kind of tried to control my face a little bit more. But I'm wondering if I'm letting them just like run wild while I'm talking to people in the office in person. I wouldn't say it's been, well, I haven't been into the office, but it's, it's not been noticeable on Zoom. <laughs> Vicky, how about you? Sort of this, this transition from going from being completely remote to heading back into the office and having to like relearn how to be a, like a physical presence again, I guess. Yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? I can't say I've actively thought about it. It has actually, I think, come quite naturally. Although, you know, when I was in the office the other day with a few of our colleagues, many of whom have been on this podcast, I don't think there was as much uh, productivity as usual because we all got a bit overexcited at, you know, actual physical social interaction with people, um, which was lovely. Um, but yeah, I did find myself last night kind of Googling, thinking I need a bit of a new wardrobe. I've been wearing sort of the same two outfits for the whole of the uh, lockdown because I, I kind of thought, oh, you know, who am I going to impress? I mean, I'm only on Zoom um so i guess it's but maybe you know more a bit of a celebration as well it's not necessarily a bad thing of like you know re-entry into the world absolutely i'm, I'm working a bit out of how effort to... in for you guys <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, i don't feel like i've put an effort into what i've been wearing for most of the last 18 months so it will be it will be nice to open up the wardrobe and put on a button uh, a button shirt Next week, I'm on holiday, uh, so uh, no dressing up. Uh, but when I'm back in the office, I promise to be uh, wearing um, at least something that is vaguely smart. Podcast at Wired.co.uk. People are, 
I guess slowly or quite quickly returning to the office. So maybe this is uh, quite a relatable thing for all of you guys as well. How are you handling this issue of Zoom dysmorphia, of no longer seeing your face on a Zoom screen all the time, of being back in the office and speaking to colleagues that you've only seen online for the past 18 months? Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we talked about on the show this week. Or if you're trawling back through the archives and want to get in touch about an old story, please do. Podcast at wired.co.uk. That's it for this week. We'll see you again next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Goodbye.